Morning, everyone. Um, today we're reading from Daniel 7. And settle in again. It's kind of a long one. Okay. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is a summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night as I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn, there were eyes, like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like white as wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire, a river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because the sound of the arrogant words that words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts... Their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion, a glory, and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, but the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching... This horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. 
But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away, to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, that through your word you um, just reveal to us what we cannot see on our own. We pray that you would do that even now by the power of your spirit, who we celebrate this, this Sunday morning on Pentecost Sunday, that you would open up our eyes to see the ways that you are working in us, through us, and all around us. I pray you do that not only for us, but for our children as they, they learn and grow um, in the downstairs with kids men. Um, may this be a morning that you are glorified. May we be transformed more into the likeness of your son by the power of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, my name is Jake. I'm one of the ministers here um, at the Hollows. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a crazy passage, right? <laughs> Let's see what we can uh, make of this. Um, to start, I just, I wanted to ask a question. Like, what is one of your, the, your favorite scenes in, in one of your favorite movies? Just think about that. Or, or how about, what, like, what's a movie scene where, that's so iconic that when you start quoting lines from it, people immediately know what you're talking about? I know, <clears throat> I know for me, I grew up on the, the original Star Wars films, the OGs. Um, so I think of... Uh, movies like Empire Strikes Back and that, f- that famous scene where Vader reveals himself to his father. He's like, I am, or to his son, I am your father, right? Sorry if you haven't seen that yet, a spoiler. But, uh, or how about that scene from Titanic where when Jack and Rose, they're on the front of the ship and Rose has, has her arms out wide, I'm flying, Jack. Or, or maybe your Christmas isn't finished until Hans Gruber falls from the tower and die hard. Um, these are all such iconic scenes, right? And, and they bring with them whole casts of characters and the stories that they inhabit. Now, the same sort of thing is going on when Jesus uses the title Son of Man to speak about himself and his mission. That one title, it brings with it a whole cast of characters and the stories that they inhabit. Now, Jesus, he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to save his people through the, the line of the good King David. And Daniel and his friends, they knew this promise well. They, they were waiting for the day that God was going to restore his people back to their homeland and set up a new king from the line of David who would, who would reign and rule on God's behalf. And Jesus, he is the fulfillment of this promise. But if you look at the, the Gospels, the narratives about Jesus' life and ministry, you'll notice that he never uses that title himself. Instead, he uses the title Son of Man. Now, when the Pharisees and religious leaders um, are grumbling because Jesus forgives sins, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. How does Jesus define his ministry? We see it in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this, is, this, this title is so important to Jesus that he uses it over and over again. But why? Well, perhaps part of the reason is because there were so many wayward expectations about who the Messiah would be and what he would do, and Jesus didn't want other, other Israelites to think he was just another rebel looking to overthrow the Roman government. So he uses the title Son of Man, which for his Jewish listeners would have brought to mind at least those attentive to his teaching and the storyline of the Bible. It would have brought to mind this one scene from Daniel 7, this one scene that captures all the main characters of the Bible and the whole storyline of God's redemption, which is another reason why Jesus chooses this Son of Man title. It's like those famous iconic scenes that bring with it the whole story of the movie. But what does this title tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? 
Daniel 7 is a strange and difficult passage. As we continue in our sermon series on the book of Daniel, God of the Exile, we come to a sudden shift in literary device, as I'm sure you may have noticed. The book, it turns from stories about Daniel and his friends and their, their faithfulness in a foreign land to speak about wild and wondrous visions that Daniel received while he was in exile. <clears throat> These visions, they're going to continue on until the end of the book. Um, but this, this one chapter, it's actually the center of the whole book itself. All the stories before are, have been fl- um, running up until this this moment, and all the visions that flow out of it depend upon it. But it's not only the center of the book of Daniel, it's actually a retelling of the whole story of the Bible. uh, Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, it's all there. It's a difficult text, but it has something really important to tell us. It shows what the book of Daniel has been saying over and over again. God is in control, and he has won the final victory. So let's walk through this text together and do our best to understand this scene that is Jesus' self-designation. And it's broken up into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 14, which tell the vision, and then verses 15 to the end, which have further explanation. Now, in it we see the opposing kingdoms, which are confronted by the court in session, and the king and his kingdom. Now, through it all we see that God is in control and he has won the final victory. Now, before we can start identifying the various characters in this, this narrative arc that is the wonderful wild scene of Daniel 7, I, I wanted to be sure that we took a moment to have a good understanding of apocalyptic literature, Now, which is what we see in the second half of the book of Daniel. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, perhaps you might think of a zombie wasteland. But the word apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world as, as you know it. Uh, the Bible Project, led, led by Tim Mackey, has some um, really helpful content on the various literary forms of the Bible, uh, one of which is apocalyptic literature. And he talks about how apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. In apocalyptic literature, God pulls back the curtain to show what's really going on with the world giving a heavenly perspective on our earthly situation. It's written in a poetic and imaginative style that is full of symbolism based on biblical design patterns developed throughout the Bible. You can think of these design patterns kind of like hyperlinks that should send your mind back to earlier moments in the story, earlier moments in the story of the Bible. Um, giving in these these moments they give insight to understanding the images that are described now with that in mind let's take a look at the text we see in verse one that this vision comes during the first year of king belshazzar if you remember from chapter five this was the last king of babylon before the medes and persians took over the babylonian empire so we're taking a step back in the chronology of daniel to witness a vision that helped inform Daniel's faithfulness in exile. From his earthly perspective, Babylon was in charge. This violent empire had destroyed his homeland and sent his people away into exile. His situation, it seemed hopeless. I'm sure he was full of doubts about whether or not God was in control, whether or not God cared about the suffering of his people. So where did Daniel get the kind of faith that we saw him display in the previous chapter when he stood up to a wicked king and refused to worship this king and instead choose to worship the one true God, even at the risk of his own life by being thrown into the lion's den? Well, it was in part due to the apocalyptic visions like we see in in Daniel 7. This vision gives Daniel a heavenly perspective on his earthly suffering, revealing that God is in control and he has won the final victory. So the the first part of Daniel 7, it directs our attention to the opposing kingdoms, those worldly orders that oppose God and his rule. The vision, it starts with four winds that churn up the sea, which causes these mutant beasts to charge up onto the land. Now this is an image of creation unraveled. The four winds, they signify a holistic event, east, west, north, south, all the directions of the earth. This is something affecting all of creation. 
The mention of this, the, the sea brings us back to the beginning of the story, to Genesis 1, where God created everything out of the nothingness of the chaotic waters. You see this in Genesis 1, verse 2, it's, where uh, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, the sea, it continues to be an image of chaos and destruction throughout the Bible. God brought order out of chaos in the beginning when he brought up the dry land out of the waters. But now we see that the sea is producing destruction as it throws these mutant beasts onto the dry land. Now, the mutant beasts, they're also an image of creation unraveled. God made a good and ordered world. In Genesis 1, we see over and over again that God calls what he makes good. And he crowns his creations with creatures made in his image, charged with ruling over all of creation. It says in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. What an amazing statement. It reveals that God, from the beginning, always intended to unite heaven and earth. He does so in us, made of flesh and bone, yet also spirit. The animals, they're but flesh. The angels are but spirit. We are both. In us, heaven and earth meet. Uh, Tim Mackey, he says it like this. To say that humans are made in the image of God is to say that humans are to be a bridge between heaven and earth. We are an apocalypse. We reveal to all creation who God is, no matter our abilities, our gender, or race. The philosopher Descartes, he was actually wrong. We don't think and therefore exist. We exist because God has made us in his image, which is a truth about each one of us that cannot be taken away or destroyed. Furthermore, God gave us a role to play, he, to rule alongside of him. Our charge to rule, it reveals that God was always um, in the business of exalting the humble. The psalmist uh, meditates on this amazing truth in the psalm book of Israel. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. What an amazing thing God has done. He has made us to rule on his behalf, to, to image him in his good and ordered world, not because there's anything worthy in us, but because of his amazing grace. That we were made to care for and rule over all creatures, over all creation, but what do we see in verse 3 of Daniel 7? Four monstrous beasts are coming up out of the waters, bringing destruction over the earth. We were made to rule the beasts. Now we see that the beasts are ruling over us. More than that, we see from the interpretation of verse 17 that these beasts represent human kings. So humans made in God's image are now shown to not only be ruled over by animals, but also to be acting like animals. What's the result? God's good creation is destroyed as his creatures devour each other like rabid beasts. This should bring us back to another early scene in Genesis 3 where the first humans rebel against God. They chose to listen to the serpent who, who was a crafty beast, right, in the Garden of Eden who tempted them to disobey God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate from it thinking they would become like gods. They, they thought they wanted to, to decide between good and evil on their own terms. But instead of becoming like gods, they be, their rebellion, it brought sin and death into God's good and ordered world. It, it broke our relationship with God and one another and all creation. Now, instead of ruling over animals, we are ruled over by our every whim and desire and so become like animals. And the empires we create, it magnifies the sin within us on a societal scale to the point that some of them become like violent beasts. 
It's like a pastor once said, as a sailboat is designed for the water, such that if it runs aground, it is damaged and useless. A human, be uh, human beings run aground when we choose to be our own source of authority. We were made to know and serve God alone. But when we acted out of our nature and against our nature and chose to live for ourselves, we shipwrecked not only ourselves, but all of creation along with us. This is the unraveling of creation. But let's focus on these mutant beasts. We see in verse 17 that these mutant beasts, they represent four kings and their violent kingdoms. We should see here a connection with the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, when he saw the statue of four metals, each representing a different empire. The meaning of that, that dream is similar to the meaning of this vision. Empires will rise and fall, but their violence will one day come to an end. Now, which violent kingdoms do these beasts represent? From the details given about the mutant lion, the eagle's wings, and the, the gift of a human's mind, it's clear that this beast represents Nebuchadnezzar, who, if you remember from chapter 4, was humbled to become like a beast, growing hair like an eagle, until he acknowledged God's rule over all creation and was given back a human mind. Now, the first beast would have been recognized by Daniel, who, who witnessed this fall and rise of Nebuchadnezzar as the kingdom of Babylon. Now, it's not clear what, what violent kingdoms the other mutant beasts represent. The Medes and Persians, perhaps? The fourth and most destructive beast, which, with the further details given in verse 25, the changing of festivals and laws, is likely the kingdom of Greece, and that one arrogant horn, um, one specific violent Grecian king. Um, but what's important to remember is the purpose of apocalyptic literature. It's meant to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly situation, to see things not from our vantage point, which is limited, but from God's vantage point, from his perspective. So some come to apocalyptic literature trying to decode its secrets as, as if God were hiding something from us in his word, but the word apocalypse means to reveal, to uncover, to see things more clearly. For Daniel and his friends exiled in a foreign land, this vision would have revealed that God is the one who's in control, and he has won the final victory, no matter what evil empire might be in charge at the time. It reveals the same thing for us today. We will continue to see cycles of violent kingdoms rising and falling, just like in the time of Daniel. This cycle will continue until the end of time, when God will bring a final end to the violent kingdoms of this world and establish his eternal kingdom over all the earth. Now, we can and should relate these violent kingdoms to empires of our own time and with empires that will rise and fall in times to come. There's one more thing I want to note about these opposing kingdoms, and that's the cosmic scale of the battlefield. And we're in the middle of a cosmic battlefield. You can see this in Daniel 7 when it comes to the fourth and most destructive beast. This hideous monster is covered in horns. Now, horns are a sign of strength, power, and authority throughout the Bible. God is revealing to Daniel that super beasts are going to rise up doing far more destruction than the ones that came before them. This fourth beast and its arrogant horn, they torment God's people. But we also see from verse 21 that they wage war on a cosmic scale. Uh, let's read that verse. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. Now that word holy ones is used throughout the book of Daniel to refer to spiritual beings. So this evil and destructive empire is waging war not only against God's earthly people, but also God's heavenly people. We don't often consider the, the scale of spiritual warfare, but the church leader Paul makes it clear that our fight is not ultimately against the people before us, but against the evil spiritual forces of darkness that lurk behind the brokenness of this world. He says to the churches in Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Evil in the Bible is personal, systemic, and demonic. When we lose sight of any one of these facets, we can get into a lot of trouble. We have to keep in mind that when facing opposition to God's kingdom, the forces we face are not always visible. 
we face a three-pronged assault, evil spiritual forces, the weakness and sin within us, and the sinful systems of this fallen world. What are our weapons in this war? I think Paul uh, makes that clear in, later in this same book to the Ephesians, um, and he shows that it's the word of God in prayer. Paul goes on to speak about spiritual warfare, saying, take the helmet of salvation, so protecting the most important part of our bodies, right, with the, the finished work of Christ, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, our one weapon, right? But then he goes on to say, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. I think he adds that right after to show that this is another aspect to our warfare. So I must admit that I, I fail to place as much importance on prayer as I should. I tend to focus far more on completing my to-do list than on joining God and humbly submitting to him in prayer. Now, when we face when faced with evil systems like consumerism or the widening divide between the political right and left, I, I feel powerless sometimes. But prayer and the truth of God's word are our greatest weapons against all the forces that oppose God and his kingdom. With God's word, we replace the lies of Satan with the truth of Christ. In prayer, God, he invites us to participate with him on the cosmic battlefield to join him in the often hidden work of his kingdom renewal in the hearts and minds of, of men and women, of neighborhoods and cities. Now, what we do on Saturday morning prayer or, or here on Sunday when we gather to worship is an affront against all the forces of darkness. Even if all we see is spilled coffee or crying babies or, or whatever it may be that distracts us, we have to allow God to apocalypse our vision to unveil our eyes to see that in the humble rhythms of worship, we join God in the fight against the evil within us and all around us. Now, how can we know that God's rule is at work in our hearts and communities? How can we know that we are a people devoted to his word and to prayer? Well, to put it simply, I think we will be, a, we will be humble people who make up a humble community. The pastor and counselor, uh, Paul Tripp, he writes, perhaps there is no better defense against spiritual attack than humility. That is a sense of constant need for protective and empowering grace that then motivates us to watch for danger and to cry out for God's help. The way of the violent kingdoms of this world is pride. The way of God's kingdom is humility. This is clear in Daniel 7, for the horn, that fourth horn of the fourth beast is said to speak arrogantly four times. As, as Frank so aptly put it a few weeks back in his sermon on Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance, um, pride is the root of all other sins. Submission to God's way and meditating on and, and living out his word and depending on him in prayer is a life of humility. Which, which is just another way of saying that you accept your place in the world not as a God, but as God's image. Andrew Murray, an old uh, preacher from the South Africa, put it like this. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. In this cosmic battlefield, our battles seldom seem like battles at all. It's a choice to get up and come to Sunday worship when you'd much prefer to sleep in or to do something else that seems more exciting at the time. It's a choice to slow down and to pray when you much prefer to get things done by your own strength or wisdom. It's a choice to stop the doom scroll of social media and spend time loving God's people, even when it's difficult and, and not easy, because relationships are never easy, right? When we, in these selfless acts, in these dependent acts, God's grace is on display. We need him and we need each other to live a humble and dependent life in this exile world that, that spreads the lie that we must only and always depend upon ourselves. Following Jesus is, isn't often flashy or thrilling. It's one step in front of the other, a long obedience in the same direction. The wonderful thing is that we don't walk this journey alone. 
remembering the good news of, of Pentecost Sunday, we have the very spirit who raised Jesus from the dead living within us. Yes, he unites us to one another and he empowers us to live a humble life of obedience. And by keeping in step with the spirit as we follow the ways of Jesus, we are actually living into the deep reality of the way the world really is. Because Jesus, he is on the throne. And he will reign forever. You know, faced with opposing kingdoms, it might seem impossible that God really is in control and that he has won the final victory. But Daniel's vision gives us God's perspective. The beasts, they've had their day. But in verse 9, everything changes. Daniel sees thrones set in place. In the ancient of days, who is God himself, take his seat to judge. This is the court in session. In the midst of all the destruction and violence on the earth, Daniel, he looks up and he sees that God is the one who is in control. And one thing to note about this courtroom scene is that there are multiple thrones that are set up. Now, do you remember the watchers from chapter 4, the ones who chose how to humble Nebuchadnezzar? These watchers are part of what the Bible describes as the divine council which is a group of spiritual beings with which God shares his authority in ruling over creation. And God, he is so good and generous that he not only seeks to share his authority with those made in his image, like you and me, but he also shares his authority with spiritual beings. That this court in session is that divine council over which God is the head. There are two things this courtroom scene tells us. One, God is in control. Two, God is judged. We actually see God's sovereignty at work in the previous verses. Each beast is given something that defines their rule. The lion is given a human mind. The bear is commanded to devour. The leopard is given dominion. Only the fourth beast exercises its rule in arrogant defiance against God himself. Now, here we see the, as imperfect as it may be, God continuing his plan to, to rule and care for his creation through those made in his image. Yet because we are fallen and the systems that we create are fallen, they will never last. And among the empires of history, some kingdoms rise up that are so arrogantly opposed to God and his rule that they refuse to acknowledge him at all. Even these kingdoms will fall. God only allows sin and the destruction that these sinful empires create to last only so long. But if God is in control, why does he allow so much evil? A typical rebuttal to Christianity is that because we are faced with so much evil in the world, either God is not in control or he's not good. But this, is, this claim is full of assumptions. First, it assumes that e the evil we see in the world is pointless. But this misses what the Bible shows us over and over again. It, which sho it shows us that God actually uses evil to bring healing and restoration. You see this in the story of Joseph, for example, him and his brothers in the book of Genesis. They sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt because he was their father's favorite. But while in Egypt, God raises Joseph up to a prestigious place so that he can help the king of Egypt prepare for a deadly famine. And because of this, Joseph not only saves the lives of thousands of Egyptians, but also his whole family who come down to Egypt during the years of famine. Joseph, he sums it up well when he says to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Here we see what God is always doing, bringing good out of bad, guiding even evil toward his purposes. Timothy Keller, he writes, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. He goes on to write, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? Now, I've experienced this in my own life many times. My parents, they got divorced back in 2015, which came to me as a great and sudden surprise. Everything normal in my life started to be turned on its head. Yet in, in his kindness, God used this terrible situation to deepen my dependence upon him as my good father. And he also used it to reveal the sin and brokenness hiding within my own heart as I began to question my quote-unquote perfect Christian upbringing. 
God, he's always using difficult moments like these, our trials and our pain, to make us more like his son, Jesus. Through, the, through our suffering, he helps us become the people that we need to be for our families, our friends, our church, our neighborhoods. Yet more beautifully still, though we may not always know why we suffer, the cross reveals that God is not aloof to our suffering or the evil of this world. No, the cross, in the cross, God suffers with humanity and defeats evil by taking it upon himself. Now, secondly, the existence of suffering and evil is actually an argument in favor of the existence of God. When, when we claim that something is evil or unjust, we're, we're relying on moral assumptions that are built upon the teachings of Christian, um, Christian teaching in times past. The animal world, if you look, it, it, suffering and death are par for the course, right? Keller, he, go, he writes again, Pe- people, we believe, ought not to suffer, be excluded, die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. Yet because we are made in God's image, we have a desire for something more, something better, for a world where the weak and are, are cared for, not excluded or destroyed. It's God who breaks into the natural ways of this fallen world to move things back to the beautiful intentions he had when he originally made all things good. And how does he do this? He often does it through judgment. Now, God as judge is another thing we struggle to acknowledge here in the West. But it's important to remember that this is our own cultural hang-up. Um, Daniel, living in exile, he would, have saw, he would have seen this as a good thing. Psalm 96 is actually a celebration of God's judgment which shows all of creation, not just humans, rejoicing in God, judging the world with righteousness. So what does Daniel see in, in God the judge that we miss? I think the problem is that we bring our own cultural assumptions with us when we read the Bible. One pastor, he points out, writing, members of Western cultures love the concept of God's love for all people and recoil from the doctrine of God's wrath on evil. More traditional tribal cultures will have no problem with a God of judgment, but will bristle at the idea that he loves all people groups equally. Each culture then will tend to highlight certain biblical teachings and downplay others. So because of our cultural assumptions about what love is and what justice is, we lose sight of the biblical truth that love and justice go together. This is why we need to read the Bible in a diverse community of faith for we can help to sharpen one another in our understanding of God's word. Mosaf Wolf, he's a Croatian scholar who helps us on the subject of judgment. I quoted him a few weeks back, but I just want to quote a bit of what he says on God's divine judgment again, because I think it's so helpful for us. He says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Wolf, Wolf here helps us to put God's judgment into perspective so that we can see that it is also an expression of his love, a means to put an end to the suffering of the innocent. The court in session is good news because it shows that God is in control and he will make an end to violence and injustice. We see this in verse 11 when the fourth beast is destroyed. We can take comfort like Daniel that God is in control and he will make a final end of evil. His his judgment means we don't have to take justice into our own hands. We can be at peace, even in the most difficult of situations, because God is ruler over all, and he will work all things together for his glory and our good. This is how God's divine judgment makes us peaceable people. We can love our neighbors when they disagree with us, or even when they hate us, because we know in the midst of it all, God is the one who's on the throne. And he will one day set all things right. This is the divine perspective that Daniel needed in his exile. And it's the divine perspective we need in our exile too. We live in a scary world just like Daniel did. There's the continued war in Ukraine, the possible financial crisis if the debt limit isn't raised. Or what about the breakneck speed of developments in AI? It it all seems too much sometimes. but, But in the midst of it all, God is in control and he is the one who's on the throne. He is judge. Yet two times in this passage, Daniel is said to be overcome with fear. If this divine perspective was meant to bring some sense of peace for Daniel in the, his time of exile, 
why is he terrified? In some sense, it's the right response when you come face to face with the holy God. But in another sense, I, I think it, it reveals that he did not fully understand how God would make a final end of evil or how much suffering his, his people would have to face in the meantime. It's not easy to suffer, even if you know the end is good. But the hints that Daniel leaves us about the final end of evil, about the final end of these violent kingdoms, brings us back to the reason why Jesus chose the Son of Man title for himself and his ministry. In the final portions of this passage, we see the king and his kingdom. After the fourth beast is destroyed, Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And Daniel sees this human-like figure coming up from the world ravaged by beastly empires. The figure approaches God, who, who gives him a throne by his side to rule a kingdom that will never end. Now, who is this son of man figure? The Hebrew terms man and son, Adam and Enos, together with their Aramaic equivalents, which is what we have in Daniel 7, are collective terms for mankind. Also, any individual human being is a son of man or a ben Adam. So the term son of man is just another way of saying human or humanity. But this, this human being stands in stark contrast to the beast that came before him. He is not like a violent animal ruling a kingdom that will eventually be judged and replaced. His kingdom never comes to an end. This human is fulfilling the role that God always intended for us, to rule alongside of him. You may have heard the saying, I'm only human, after someone makes a mistake. But our problem is not that we are too human, but that we fail to be the humans God made us to be. We are not human enough. Not so with this son of man. He is the perfect image of God. He is the true human. Daniel would have seen in this son of man figure the fulfillment of God's promise to King David that he would always provide a king for the people of Israel from among his offspring. The king, he was meant to be a representative of the whole people of Israel and to rule the people on God's behalf with love and justice. But when Israel fell to the Babylonians, God's promise was in jeopardy. Would God provide a king for his people? Would he remain faithful to his promises, bringing back the royal line of David? and reestablishing the kingdom of Israel. Daniel's three friends, if you remember, were among the royal line of David, but they were not the fulfillment of this promise. They may remain faithful in a foreign land, but they're unable to free their people. They can't destroy these beastly empires that oppress them. This true human, on the other hand, is the one they've been waiting for. One Bible commentator describes the Son of Man like this, ruling God's world on God's behalf, the human-like figure fulfills the role once given to humanity as a whole at creation and later bestowed on the king of Israel in particular. As the true human and the king long hoped for, the Son of Man is a representative of all the people of God, of Daniel and his friends and all Israel languishing under the oppression of the beastly empire, Babylon. He's God's yes to Daniel that he will fulfill his promise, that exile is not the end of the story. There will be a homecoming. Yet there's something strange about this son of man. He's not only the true human, he's also God-like. If you notice, the son of man approaches God on the clouds of the sky in verse 13. An odd image, right? Well, this is another biblical image that calls up other stories throughout the Old Testament. One Bible commentator notes, with the clouds of heaven is reminiscent of the Sinai covenant. For in the Exodus narrative, the glory of the Lord appeared in the clouds. So he's speaking about the time that Israel went into the desert led by Moses and God met them at Mount Sinai and came down in this cloud full of fire and lightning and gave them the Ten Commandments. The, the commentator, he goes on, a concordance will reveal how frequent is the reference to clouds in connection with the presence of the Lord. So where clouds are, the Lord often is in the Bible. So the reader should therefore be taken by surprise to see in such a setting one like a son of man. I'm sure Daniel was surprised by this revelation. How could a person be both like a human and also like God? If you have in mind a Sunday school answer, 
you would be correct. This is Jesus. He is the only one who fulfills this image. He is God in the flesh, fully human yet fully God. Daniel sees the, the image of the one who will not only save the people of Israel, but all of creation. This is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the true human who lived the perfect life of dependence and obedience to the Father that we were always meant to, but we could never give because of our sin and rebellion. In his perfect humanity, Jesus gives us the righteousness we need. Yet he is also God himself. Our sin and rebellion were ultimately against God. So only God could forgive us. And in Jesus, God does just that. He forgives us not by judging us as we deserve, but by taking that judgment upon himself and his work on the cross. Ultimately, this is why God is judge is good news. It's not just good news because it means God is in control. It also means that we don't have to face his judgment when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. In the cross, God's justice against sin and his mercy for sinners beautifully and wonderfully comes together. Paul sums it up well when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This true human, son of God and son of man, wins victory against all these evil forces, not like the violent beast that came before him. No, his victory comes not by taking power, but by giving it away on the cross. This is so clearly displayed in another apocalyptic book in our Bibles, Revelation. There, Jesus is described as a slain lamb, yet also the line of Judah, the powerful ruler that the people of Israel had been waiting for. The pastor and author, Vadi Bachman, highlights these two images, writing, by juxtaposing the two contrasting images, the, the lion and the lamb, uh, John, the writer of Revelation, has forged a new symbol of conquest by sacrificial death. Did you hear that? Conquest by sacrificial death. The Messiah has certainly won a victory, but he has done so by sacrifice for the benefit of people from all nations. God is not ambivalent to evil and suffering. It troubles him so much that in Jesus, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to make an end of it. And this way of the lamb, the way of sacrifice, death to self and nonviolence, is the way that he calls us to take up in our violent world. It may not always seem practical or even possible, but this is the way of Jesus. We are called to celebrate the good news of the cross as we also live a cross-shaped life in which we do not seek to gain power, but to give it away in service to others, even to our enemies. You know, so... Why, why does, and so how do we do this? We do this by depending upon the Spirit as we rest in the hope of an everlasting kingdom. Now, we see this in Daniel, we see this in Daniel 7, that the true man, the, the true human, the king that we, the world has been waiting for, it gives us an everlasting kingdom filled with, with God's people, both in heaven and on earth. The true human brings together heaven and earth, which was God's intention from the beginning, an intention that he longed to fulfill through his image bearers and which he has fulfilled through the perfect image of God, Jesus. You can see this in the text as the kingdom that the Son of Man is given is also said to be given to the holy ones or to spiritual beings and to the people of the holy ones or all God's faithful followers on earth. Um, I'm going to compare two verses, so just bear with me here. So the, right, it's right there in verse 18. Um, but the, the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And remember, the holy ones means spiritual being. And then again in verse 27, which can be more literally translated, um, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, to the people associated with the holy ones, of the Most High. So you, so you, so you see two groups there. The, the faithful people of God, both in heaven and on earth, are brought together in this one everlasting kingdom, ruled by the Son of Man, who is the faithful representative of both. This is the culmination of God's plan of redemption, when creation is not destroyed, but renewed as heaven and earth finally meet. This is what Paul is speaking about to his letter to the churches in Ephesus. He writes, he, that is God, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ 
as a plan for the right time. And what, what is this mystery of his will? It is to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on the earth in him. In Christ, by the Spirit, we begin to live out our role, the role that we had from the beginning, to rule alongside of him. Um, and one day, this everlasting kingdom, it will cover all things as heaven and earth are finally united and all sad things come untrue. And the hope of this everlasting kingdom is meant to encourage Daniel and his friends in their exile, and it's meant to encourage us in our exile too. The world is not as it should be. It's filled with suffering, injustice, and death. But this world will not always be Babylon. One day when Jesus comes again, he will set all things right and establish his kingdom in its fullness. We live in the in-between, between the victory of the slain lamb and the, fulfillment of his, and the full fulfillment of his kingdom. This reality should affect our lives in many ways. We are to live as citizens of the kingdom come and coming, even as we live in the kingdoms of this world. A poignant reminder as we get ready to celebrate Memorial Day. And we don't have to get caught up in the political dogmas of right or left because we follow the Lamb whose government is not owned by any political ideology. We can live together in a truly diverse community because we find our unity not by class, creed, or culture, but by the Christ who lives in us by his spirit. We can rejoice in sadness. We can mourn without despair. We can work for justice in our city, yet rest knowing that justice will reign when the true king comes back again. This is Daniel's apocalypse. You can see why Jesus chose the Son of Man title for himself and his ministry, for in this one scene, all the story of the Bible unfolds before us. It fits for all of Scripture is about him. It all finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the suffering Savior and Lord. You know, Daniel 7, like any apocalypse, is meant to bring both a warning and an encouragement. When we face God's, when, when we receive God's heavenly perspective on our earthly situation, everything starts to be put in its right place. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I ask that you take stock of your lives. How, how does this apocalypse help you see more clearly? Where does it challenge you? Are you spending your time worrying about things that don't ultimately matter in the grand scheme of God's story of redemption? Are you failing to devote yourself fully to things that will last, living for the everlasting kingdom? Similarly, um, where does this apocalypse encourage you? I ask that you rest in this wonderful truth that God is in control and he has won the final victory. In one of the primary activities of the spirit in the life of a Christ follower is to encourage us with the truth of the gospel that Jesus has won and he will never let us go. He will bring us to that end where we will meet him face to face. So on this Pentecost Sunday, rest in the, the, this work of the spirit in your life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this apocalypse can be a scary thing. For you, it does mean the end of the world as you know it because if God is in control and he has won the final victory, it means you're not in control of your life. And you need saving from a violent world filled with wayward worship. Now, don't leave this place or don't turn off the sermon if you're watching online without considering what it might look like to take a, one step closer to this Savior who has given everything away to save you.